0: Let's finish our study in the book of Romans. So if you grab your Bibles and turn to Romans 16, we will finish our study. We've been rumbling through Romans now for almost a year, and we're on the home stretch. Always good to see the finish line if you're in a marathon, and we've been in this book since last September, and today we're going to bring our study to a close. I just want to look at verses 17 through 27 with you this morning. I know I was touched, as I'm sure you were, by, by Sherry's song, and I just want to add on to what David said about the uh, strategic importance of ministering to children, not only in our own families. I know that echoes my heartbeat as a father to uh, really give my kids a foundation in faith and to introduce them to the things of God and the truth of God at an early age so that they will carry with them this childlike faith all through their lives and we have that opportunity not only with our own children but with other children as well in ministering to them and uh, it's an exalted ministry to minister to uh, children it's not just uh, daycare on sundays or uh, child care we're not just babysitting but we're introducing them to the deep things of god and giving them a foundation that they can use to To handle life. So I'd encourage you to give real serious thought to your participation in that ministry. Now, Paul, in concluding his words here in Romans 16, has uh, three brief sections in his concluding remarks. First of all, in verses 17 through 20, there's a word of warning. Secondly, in verses 21 through 24, there's a word of greeting. And finally, in verses 25 through 27, a word of encouragement. First of all, his word of warning in verses 17 through 20. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Paul was aware that every time the gospel would go forth, there would be those who would follow along in his wake and would seek to distort the basic message of the gospel and and twist it and paul says one of the things we need to do as believers is to be aware of this and keep our eye on those who are causing these divisions or hindrances uh, in the body of christ it says the mark of false teaching or false teachers is that they teach things which are contrary to what you have learned always the standard for us as believers is what is revealed in the scriptures And everything we hear, whether it's on radio or television or from somebody who comes to our door or hands us a piece of literature, always what we're to do is to compare it to the clear revelation of the Scripture. And if it's something which is different, if it's contrary to what we read here, then we are to turn away from it. Paul says we have to be alert to this. And uh, watch for those. Now, Paul's word is interesting about how you treat someone who does this, who is seeking to distort the message of the gospel, as you just turn away from them. So, if someone comes to your door and is peddling a false gospel, you don't need to feel the obligation to engage them in debate or discussion. You simply turn away from them. Politely but gently terminate the conversation. And close the door. Paul says that's the best way to deal with those who are propagating a false gospel is simply ignore them, and eventually they'll go away. That's his word to us here. I have a book that came across my desk just this past week, just to give you a simple example of how this can work. Uh, The title of the book was 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Must Occur in 1988. And this guy had 88 different reasons that showed quite convincingly that the rapture of the church must occur by September 11th of this year. Now, uh, did I need to spend any time perusing that book to see if there was any substance to this? Well, no, because Jesus said quite clearly that no man knows the day or the hour. So I don't have to be disturbed by that or confused by it or puzzled by it. Simply file that in the round file and move on. Everything must be compared to what we find in the scriptures. Now, the reason Paul is concerned about those who propagate a false gospel is it does two things, he says. First of all, it causes dissension or division in the body. And secondly, false teaching serves as a hindrance to people or a stumbling block, an obstacle in the path of spiritual progress. There's a group of... uh, There's a church here in town which teaches that you must be baptized according to a particular formula in order to be saved. And they will go door to door in pairs and try to get people to believe this. Now, this is error because the scriptures nowhere link salvation with being baptized according to a particular formula. All through the scripture, we are saved simply because we believe in Jesus Christ and trust him as our Lord and Savior. So when when these uh, came to the uh, door of a friend of mine, They said, would you be interested in uh, participating in a Bible study? Would you be interested in uh, knowing if your church was teaching error? Would you be interested in getting into a Bible study in which the truth about these things was taught? And my friend's response, I think, was quite properly, well, no, I'm actually not interested in that. I'm far more interested in why you're going around town causing dissension and division in the body of Christ. Because this is what false teaching does. It stirs up suspicion and confusion in the hearts of those who are scripturally untaught. And the second thing Paul says it does is it puts hindrances or obstacles in the path of people who are showing an interest in spiritual things. Occasionally you'll see someone who's just beginning to show an interest in the things of God, and someone from a cult will latch onto them and begin to introduce them to a false gospel. And because they're hungry for spiritual things, they'll be seduced by this, and this becomes an obstacle then to the progress that you'd like to see them make in spiritual things. So Paul says this is an important consideration. And he says when you encounter someone who's pushing a false gospel, just turn away from them rather than argue or debate. If you uh, are disturbed at what uh, Reverend Edelin says in his column, and it gets your pulse rate up too high and uh, threatens uh, the operation of your pacemaker, well, just stop reading it. You know, Don't let it agitate you. Just turn it. Whatever you, whatever you do, don't believe what he says. But secondly, if it bugs you, then just stop, uh, stop reading it. By the way, his column yesterday, for those of you that read it, was a prime example of the distortion of the truth that those who spin a false gospel will propagate. He cited a couple of um, what are called apocryphal gospels, the gospel of Mary and the gospel of Philip. Erroneously indicating that these preserve traditions which are older than we find in the gospel. That's simply not true. These uh, documents are a product of the second and third centuries, so they represent traditions which are at least 100 years older than what we find in the scriptures and were never accepted as authoritative or accurate or historical by the early church. They were rejected from the moment that they were produced, never received any sort of credibility in the history of the church. But those who are unsuspecting, Paul says, and you notice those are the ones that are in danger here. The NIV uses the word naive, that uh, those who spin a false gospel can deceive those who are unsuspecting, those who are theologically or scripturally unsophisticated and untaught and gullible in that sense and willing to believe this. And they can be knocked off balance then by someone who comes along with a persuasive line of pattern. And you notice that Paul says those who, who distort the gospel often will use smooth and flattering speech. He says that's what makes them, uh, that's what makes them subtle in their approach is their speech is smooth and it's flattering. That word for flattering can have the idea of persuasive. So these are people who are very smooth. They may be very kind and benevolent and show a great deal of interest in you. They don't have, uh, forked tongues and horns coming out of their heads. May be very pleasant people, and their line may be very persuasive, and that's why the unsuspecting can be deceived. For instance, there may be someone who comes to your door who may use the same terms that are found in the scriptures. They may refer to Jesus as God or as the Son of God. Sounds good, until you examine the content with which they are filling those terms and discover that they mean actually something much different. And what the scriptures mean when they describe Jesus in His uniqueness as God, and as the Son of God, or they may come to your door denying the divinity of Christ and have a very persuasive little speech about the Greek of John one one. Well, it's poor Greek and it's worse theology. But if they memorize this canned little bit of information that they've been taught, they can sound very persuasive and appealing. And they can convince someone who knows uh, less Greek than they do. Uh, and so that's why Paul says the unsuspecting have to be, be on, their, on their guard. The, this uh, church that has people going door to door, drawing people into their particular view of baptism, will often use a very innocuous approach. They'll come to the door and say, Would you be interested in participating in a Bible study? A okay, very innocuous and uh, non-dangerous Sure, love to participate in the Bible study. Well, we have a home Bible study on Thursday nights, and uh, we'd like you to participate. We just study the Bible, no notes, no commentaries, no aids. We just study the Bible. And would you be interested in knowing if your church was teaching error? Well, of course, the answer to all of those questions for me is yes. I'd love to participate in a home Bible study without notes and aids, and I'd love to know if my church was propagating error. And so those that are unsuspecting and don't see the hidden hook here can be drawn in. So Paul says we have to be aware. Now, uh, Paul again indicates that the problem is largely with those who are spiritually unsuspecting, those who don't have a protective layer built up around them by being exposed uh, to the truth. A friend of mine who uh, has a herd of cattle has told me about times when it will be his task to go in and siphon off a mother and, and the offspring out of the herd. And that's often the approach that cults will take is they'll look to sort of pick off a stray or two here and cut them off uh, from the herd and divert them from the path of the truth. Uh, the, The Way, for instance, is a cult that's been operational in Boise for several years. They deny the divinity of Christ and salvation through faith alone. And you'll find that their strategy is to follow the Billy Graham crusades everywhere they go. And they'll sweep into town right on the heels of Billy Graham, hoping to pick off some strays whose interest in spirits of things have been triggered by their exposure to the gospel. And uh, Paul says their hearts are deceived. In other words, these people who believe a false gospel honestly believe it. Their hearts have been deceived. The mark of someone who's been deceived is that they really believe that what they've been told is the truth. And that's why Paul is careful to target those who propagate the false gospel. He's not upset or impatient or out of sorts with those who believe it. He's upset with those who are propagating it. And that likewise ought to be our concern. Uh, it would be similar if you had a family member who had been swindled out of some money. Uh, you wouldn't be upset with them for doing it because the line that they were given may have been very convincing. You would be upset with the person who defrauded this member of your family. And that's why Paul always goes back to the source. Those that know from the beginning that what they are teaching is false and yet teach it anyway. Let me give you one example of how this works. And this is just for the sake of accuracy and truth. I don't mean to pick on anyone Here, but Paul was never hesitant to name names and call a spade a spade, and I think we need to do the same thing. Uh, Back in 1812, there was an innkeeper by the name of Solomon Spaulding. He was a Presbyterian clergyman, and he and his wife ran a little hotel in the eastern part of the United States. Now, Solomon Spaulding fancied himself uh, a literary uh, genius, and so he began penning a novel had to do with Indians in the early history of the American continent. Now, what he would do is, as he would add chapters to this novel as it developed, he would read excerpts of it to his guests after dinner, and uh, most cases boring them hopelessly to tears, but he was the innkeeper, and so they were sort of stuck. But anyway, there were large numbers of people who were exposed to this novel in progress, remembered it quite vividly. Well, Solomon Spaulding was more impressed with this literary document than most of his guests, and he decided in about 1814 that he would have it printed. He would take it to a publisher, and he would pay out of his own pocket the publishing costs and get this thing published so the rest of the world could admire his literary genius. Well, the manuscript, remember there were no Xerox machines or anything like that, so the lone copy of this manuscript disappeared when it got to the publisher. It was just lost. Well, this... Novel. this novel that Solomon Spaulding had written, reappeared again about 16 years later as the Book of Mormon. Now, it so happens that the man that worked at this print shop where Solomon Spaulding had taken his novel to be published was a man by the name of Sidney Rigdon. He was a close friend of Joseph Smith, and when the Book of Mormon was published in 1830, Sidney Rigdon was the right-hand man of Joseph Smith. In fact, when this book was exposed to the public in 1830, there were many people who were still alive and had heard Solomon Spaulding read from his book and recognized it immediately as a novel of the Solomon Spaulding. In fact, he tried to use a very King James English style of literature, and so he'd often use the connecting phrase, and it came to pass, which you'll find repeatedly in the Old Testament of the King James. And that was his nickname. His guests at this inn referred to him simply as old it came to pass. And so they heard this book read in public. And says, "Oh, that's that's that book written by Old." It came to pass, and they recognized it immediately as a fraud. Well, now Paul's impatience would not be with people who believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. That's how it was presented to the public, and he would not be upset with those who believe it. They've simply been sold a false bill of goods. His uh, his. Impatience would be directed toward men like Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon who knew from the beginning that this was not inspired scripture and yet passed it off as that. And I think our attitude ought to be the same. Those around us who have been deceived into believing a false gospel, we need to be gentle with them, patient with them, realize that they are victims, they are not the enemy. In fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 20 that if you will follow my instruction here of keeping an eye on these and turning away from them, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's allusion back to Genesis chapter 3 where we're told that the Messiah would crush the serpent under his feet. And evidently the church at Rome here was threatened by some who were distorting the gospel and twisting it. And there was some unrest and uneasiness. But Paul says if you'll follow my instructions... The God of peace, it's interesting, uh, it's kind of an interesting contrast there that the God of peace will crush Satan. Kind of a striking juxtaposition of terms. But Paul realizes that the, the one who is behind this ultimately is Satan. People are not the enemy. They're simply dupes. They're unsuspecting and they've been deceived. The one with whom we do battle is Satan. And Paul encourages them that soon peace will be restored to your body if you simply follow these instructions. So Paul begins in with a word of warning, a need to to protect the gospel from those who would distort it. Then he continues in verses 21 through 24 with a word of greeting. We looked at the the extensive uh, greeting that Paul uh, sent in the first part of the chapter. Here, these are people who are with him in Corinth as he writes, and they themselves want to send a greeting along to those that they know in Rome. You notice the end of verse 20, Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. That sounds very much like the tagline of an epistle. Paul uses that same kind of concluding line in other letters. And the impression I get is that by the time Paul got through verse 20, he was done. He was finished with this letter. But they were sitting there in Gaius's family room, sitting there in the den, and Timothy said, whoa, I'd like to send a greeting along. And Lucia says, yeah, me too. It's okay, okay. Paul says, anybody want to send a greeting? Okay, here's the time to tack it on. So we have a greeting from these various different people. Timothy, who needs no introduction, my fellow worker. Lucius, who probably is the same one as we're introduced to in Acts 13.1, who was one of the teachers at the church at Antioch. Jason, who was probably Paul's host when he first came to the city of Thessalonica. Socipiter, who we know from Acts 20, was a traveling companion of Paul's. They were all kinsmen or fellow Jews of Paul's. Then in verse 22, a greeting from Tertius. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius' name just means third, uh, indicating that he was a slave. Oftentimes slaves were not given names, they were just given numbers. Tertius would be very much at home in American culture. And his name was simply third. And he adds a greeting in his own hand here at this point. This is an indication, by the way, that Paul dictated his letters. He did not actually write them with his own hand, but he would have a scribe, and often his slaves were fairly well-educated and, and literate. And so this Tertius would take dictation. As Paul wandered back and forth in Gaius's living room, he would dictate the contents of this epistle, and Tertius would, would write it down. And he stops at this point and inserts a little greeting of his own. makes him an answer to a trivia question, by the way. Did Paul write the entire book of Romans? Well, the answer is no. Tertius was uh, responsible for verse 22 of chapter 16. Then in verse 23, we're introduced to Gaius, who sends a greeting to the church at Rome and to Erastus. Gaius, we're told, was the host to Paul and to the whole church of Corinth. So evidently, while Paul was in Corinth, he stayed at the home of this Gaius, probably in a guest cottage or guest room. And he says that Gaius was host to the entire Corinthian church. Now, this would mean that Gaius was probably a man of some wealth and substance, possibly even owned an estate that would be large enough to handle the entire group of Corinthian believers, and often did. In fact, I'm intrigued with thinking that in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul writes about the Lord's table, which in the first century was really a church potluck, that what he writes about probably took place at gaius's home but at any rate gaius had a large enough home to play host to the entire church that's a reminder too by the way that largely in the new testament when wealthy people are addressed they're not told to go out and sell everything they have and give it to the poor jesus told that to one individual because that was his problem that's what kept him from god But generally, what wealthy people are told is simply to be generous with what God has given you. Use your possessions and your homes uh, to minister to people. And that's what Gaius had done. Then Erastus, the city treasurer or city administrator, greets you. He was the one who administrated the city affairs there in Corinth and therefore was a man of status and wealth himself. In fact, in 1929, an inscription was uncovered in the city of Corinth. Uh, an inscription that was found on a stretch of pavement. And the inscription indicated that a man by the name of Erastus, who was the city administrator, had furnished this paving at his own expense. Probably the same Erastus that we have here and would indicate again that he was a man of some wealth if he could afford to pave a street all on his own. Some of the uh, streets in Boise look like they've been paved uh, by people who are in the same tax bracket that I am rather than the one that Erastus was in. And then the last guy that we're introduced to in verse 23 is Quartus, the brother, known as Quart for short by his friends, or Quartz. And Quartus just means fourth. So he too was a slave, maybe was Tertius' younger brother for, for all we know, and he sends a greeting. The striking thing to me about verse 23 is that you have a greeting from uh, Gaius, who was a man who probably owned some kind of palatial estate and Erastus, who was a prominent public figure in Corinth. And in the same verse, you have a greeting sent along from an ordinary household slave. It's a reminder again, as we saw last week, of the kind of complete obliteration of social distinctions that you found in the early church. And I would hope that that same kind of lack of social consciousness would be a part of our life here as a body at at Cole. We don't want to be a yuppie church or a blue-collar church or anything in between. We just want to be a church where people, no matter what their social status is, no matter what their race or gender or tax bracket, can find a place that they can call home. And that's what the early church was like. Now, just one uh, small comment on verse 24. Uh, You'll notice, if you have a New American Standard, that my verse 24 says, See marginal note doesn't sound particularly inspirational. But if you'll notice in the marginal note of the New American Standard and the NIV the same, the reason that verse 24 is omitted in the text is because it's not found in the best uh, manuscripts. There are some old manuscripts that contain this verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, but the best and most reliable manuscripts do not. Now, the reason I want to mention this is that this is one of the uh, verses which is included in the King James Version of the Bible, but is omitted in modern translations like the New American Standard and the NIV. And there, are a, there is a group of well-meaning Christians who uh, call themselves King James-only Christians. And one of their reasons for believing only in the King James is they feel that translations like the New American Standard And the NIV are taking the Bible away from people. And they would cite a passage like this as an example. Look, here is a verse which has been taken away from you. And it's a good verse. The Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's a good verse. And it's being taken away from you. What I want you to understand is that uh, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. It's the best attested piece of literature in antiquity. Now, because these 5,000 copies, old copies of the New Testament, were hand-copied, inevitably there would be small errors in transmission that would arise. Often these uh, documents were copied orally. Scribes would sit in a room and somebody would read from a Greek text and there would be a room full of scribes who would copy these words down. Some Greek words, as in English, sound very much alike. And occasionally a scribe would misunderstand or mishear, or if he was copying from uh, actual document in front of him, would accidentally skip a line because the ending of one line might look like the ending of the next and he might accidentally omit one. So there are a number of these human errors that have crept into the transmission of texts. Well, the King James was translated based on Greek texts that were current or known in the 17th century, the early 17th century. Since then, there's been an explosion in the discovery of manuscripts. The bulk of these 5,000 Greek manuscripts that we know of now have all surfaced since then. And many of these manuscripts are older and more reliable than the ones on which the King James was translated. One thing that scribes would do is they would not delete any portions of the Bible. What they would tend to do is they would add verses from other places and include them. For instance, if you're looking at some of the gospel records, uh, there are parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, for instance, of the same story. Now, Matthew might have a verse in his account that Mark would not. A scribe would notice that, that Mark didn't have this particular verse, or his copy of Mark didn't, and he liked that verse from Matthew, And there wasn't anything wrong with that verse. It was a perfectly good verse. And if he didn't include it, then the people who read his copy wouldn't know about this verse. And so, meaning well and causing absolutely no harm, he would transcribe that verse from Matthew into his copy of Mark. Now, the best manuscripts, then, would not contain that verse. And there are some bases on which textual critics, as they're called, can go through and identify which version of the Greek text is most closely to the original. Now, my feeling is based on my study is that New American Standard and the NIV are based on the best uh, Greek texts available, better in quality and reliability than the texts on which the, the King James is translated. However, these differences involve no issue of doctrine or truth. They're very minor in nature. They're of no significance theologically which means that the King James is a perfectly good translation. Everything you need to know about life and godliness can be found in the King James. Same is true of the New American Standard and the NIV. They're all good translations. I just wanted you to be aware of that so you'll have some understanding of that issue if you run into it. Now, in closing, Paul gives a word of encouragement in verses 25 through 27. Now Paul probably added these words in his own hand. He was finished as you remember dictating in verse 20, and his friends insisted on adding some words to it. And it was Paul's uh, standard as a letter writer to add a postscript in his own hand. There's some evidence that Paul had some severe uh, eyesight problems. He was very myopic and nearsighted, most likely. One of the reasons he needed to scribe, if you've ever seeing someone who's very nearsighted try to write, you realize they need to write in very big letters just in order to see them. And so my guess is that when the Roman church got this letter from, from Paul, at the first 16 chapters and 23 verses were written very legibly and neatly in Tertius's handwriting, and then you get to 25 through 27, you have these big, huge letters as Paul scrawls this concluding doxology. This is what Paul says. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. This word of praise to the one, he says, who was able to establish you. The word establish means to set up firmly, to fix in place, to strengthen, to confirm. Paul says there's one that stands by ready to do that, to establish you Firmly. If you've ever tried to find a place in your backyard for a picnic table where all four legs are balanced, you'll know how difficult it is to find stability. And Paul understood that this is one of the things that we really need in life. We need to know that we're anchored and stable, and we can handle the winds and storms of life. I uh, get a publication from the college from which i graduated and i read with some interest this last spring that the dorm that i stayed in as a freshman has been closed down had to shut it down because it wasn't earthquake proof the college i went to is in the bay area and uh, not too far from the san andreas fault and they didn't want uh, this dorm collapsing on freshman students and so they closed it down and they're in the process now of going through a multi million dollar renovation Uh, project to kind of prop this building up so they can move students back into it so it will be stable and strong enough to withstand an earthquake. Now Paul knew that that's the same kind of strength and stability that we need in life and he says there is a place to find that. No matter how badly you get rocked and shattered and devastated, no matter what sort of reversal you might encounter in life, there's one who was able to establish you to prop you up sustain you enable you to handle that you might teeter and you might shake and you might rock but you won't fall because there's one there who is able to establish you and it's a person he says to him who is able to establish you he's the one that gives a secure confident basis for handling anything in life So this means is that I look at this week ahead of me that I am equipped by the one that Paul refers to here to handle anything. No matter what sort of disappointment or reversal I might encounter, whether it's a tragic loss or a financial reversal or a loss of a job or a foundering marriage, that there's one who stands by ready to sustain me and strengthen me and hold me up. He is able to establish Now, Paul says the one who is able to do that does so according to my gospel. Paul doesn't mean by that that his gospel was any different than the gospel of the rest of the apostles. It just means that he believed it. This is a gospel that he himself taught. For instance, my football team is the San Francisco 49ers, but I'm not the only person who would call the 49ers my team thinking football fans everywhere would refer to the 49ers as my my football team so paul says it's according to my gospel in other words the truth about the one who is able to establish you is found in the gospel according to the preaching of christ that is the proclamation about jesus he's the one who enables us to be established And he says it's according to the mystery. I think all of these terms are synonymous. Paul's gospel, the preaching of Christ, and the revelation of the mystery. All of these terms are synonymous. And Paul says the secrets about how we can be established in life have been veiled from men until the coming of Christ. That here was a mystery or a secret to our humanity that was veiled from men until the incarnation of christ and now in him the veil has been drawn back it's like the unveiling of a statue that now the shroud has been lifted and we see and understand the secrets that will restore to us our lost humanity what we lost when adam and eve partook of the apple has been restored to us in the person of christ and this secret now has been revealed When Paul uses the term mystery here, he uses it in a technical sense. This was a religious technical term in Paul's day. And it referred to a secret set of truths or rites. There were a whole set of religions called the mystery religions. And they would have secret rites or initiation procedures. And in order to be exposed to them, you had to become a member of that Uh, religious group. And then you would be exposed to these mysteries, these secret truths. Well, Paul says there's something similar about that to the gospel, that there are secret truths that cannot be known unless God chooses to reveal them. So the truths that we find about handling life that we find in the scripture are truths that we can't find anywhere else. The truths to, to being stable and foundational in life can't be found anywhere else. They're a mystery. And unless God chooses to reveal them, it's truth that we, can't, that we can't ever know. So you could read every book on psychology in the Boise State Public Library, and you would never understand the secret to our humanity because that truth is only revealed in the scriptures. That's where we find the truth that enables us to stand and be strong. And Paul says he is able to do this according to the revelation of this mystery. Now he says it's manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of God has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience which springs from faith is the idea. Paul uh, knew that the Old Testament indicated that when the light dawned it was supposed to go out to all the Gentiles. There just was... A lot of obscurity about what exactly the light would be and look like. But Paul knew from the Old Testament prophets that when it dawned, it was to be taken to all of the Gentiles. And Paul had done that in his own ministry. And then he concludes with this reference to Jesus being the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. I thought in closing it might be worth to just review a couple of the main Things that Paul has tried to teach us in the book of Romans, which I think provide a basis for us to be stable and confident in handling life. A couple of great needs I feel that we all have as people. One of those is for a sense of approval and acceptance. We need to know as people that we are loved just exactly the way we are. That somebody accepts us, loves us, approves of us just exactly as we are now one of the great messages of the book of romans one of these truths that's been revealed in this book is that the only one whose opinion really counts that's god loves us accepts us approves of us wholly and fully just the way we are simply if we believe in christ there's an approval that's granted to us, has nothing to do with our ability to perform, doesn't have anything to do with how well we've been behaving lately, or how often we've been praying, or how often we've uh, been reading the Bible, or how well we're treating our family, or how well we're doing on the job. doesn't have anything to do with that. It's just a gift that God has given to us. He approves of us. He loves us. He accepts us just exactly the way we are. And that means that it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of us. It doesn't matter if my husband doesn't like me, or my wife doesn't like me, or my children don't like me, or my parents don't like me, or my boss doesn't like me, or the people in my Bible study don't like me. I've got a basis in which I can be secure as a person because the one whose opinion really does count does approve of me. And that gives me a solid, stable base then to handle criticism and disapproval and ridicule from other people. It really doesn't matter because the only one whose opinion does count loves me and accepts me just like I am. I think another need that we have is to know that we're not stuck at the place that we're at. We want to know that we have the capacity to change and become somebody different tomorrow than I am today. This is what Paul talked about in Romans 6 through 8. And the revelation of the mystery that we saw there was that God has given to us the Holy Spirit. That the third person of the Trinity, God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit, has come to take up residence in my life. And he has determined and pledged himself to slowly and gradually transform me and change me doesn't have anything to do with how much willpower i have or how serious i am about the task doesn't have anything to do with how much of the bible i have memorized or how regular i have devotional times doesn't have anything to do with that the holy spirit has come into my life and he is determined to change me and to make me into the kind of person that i want to be and he's doing that without me even realizing it without anything i do to cause it or to generate it he's at work in my life to change me and make me somebody who's different tomorrow than I am today. And so there's a quiet sense of confidence that we can have there because it doesn't depend on me. But somebody who's ultimately trustworthy is in charge of this process of reconstructing my life. And so I can rest in that, have a quiet confidence that I am going to make it. I am going to change because it all depends on the Spirit of God who's taken up residence in me. I think if we understand these truths, that God stands by to stabilize us, that he gives us unconditional approval, sense of worth and acceptance, and he's at work to change us, then we've got a secure basis for facing life. We can handle anything that life brings to us. And that's the message I think Paul would like to leave us with. I'd like us to uh, spend a moment in prayer uh, at this point, and then we will go into our celebration of the Lord's uh, table. And as we go to the Lord's table, I'd like us to use this occasion to remember some of the truths that Paul has taught us in the book of Romans, that the cup symbolizes his death on our behalf, that he died in order that we might have a sense of acceptance before him. As we partake of the cup this morning, let's uh, reflect on the fact that God accepts us and approves of us, no matter what anybody else around us thinks of us. We have a sense of worth value and acceptance in him and let's relax in that and as the bread is passed it's a symbol of jesus as the manna who came down from heaven the bread from heaven and it's a a picture of his strength which he makes available to us to give us the capacity to handle whatever challenges life brings our way and let's reflect on that that i'm prepared for anything that life might do to me because the bread of life lives in me let's pray Father, we do thank you that you have uh, chosen to reveal to us the lost secrets of our humanity and that everything that we need is found in the person of Christ, sense of worth, our sense of strength, and adequacy. We pray, Lord, as we conclude our study in Romans, that these truths that we've been introduced to in this book would uh, leave a lasting impression on us and that we would... Uh, remember these truths and that they would be foundational for us and we'd go back to them when we feel ourselves threatened uh, by a lack of approval from someone that we'd remind ourselves of your uh, love and acceptance and we feel ourselves threatened by a sense of inadequacy and inability to do what's before us that we would remind ourselves that you are the one who is able to establish we pray these things in the name of christ amen